Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. I'll invite up uh, Becca to read our teaching text this morning. Becca, if you have not met her yet, for those who are new or haven't seen her up here because she's usually with the kids, she is our children's ministry director. Hey, is this on? Okay, cool. Hi. Hello. Good morning, everybody. I'm going to be reading Matthew 5, 1 through 12. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecute the prophets who are before you. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Becca. Well, would you pray with me again? Heavenly Father, uh, we believe that it's your words, not ours, that actually have this power to uh, get deep in our souls, uh, to get down into the bone marrow even, and change us. And so we ask this morning that we would hear for your words, um, whether it's in my words or in some other way, God, that we would hear your voice speak to us through your scriptures and that we would be changed. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. So uh, we're beginning a series that we talked about last Sunday, all about the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus' sort of most famous teaching. It's found in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And it's here that he gives us a sort of curriculum for Christ-likeness, is what Dallas Willard calls it. It's Jesus' master class on discipleship. It's how he articulates or puts into speech what the way of Jesus is. And last week we talked about the importance of Jesus' invitation to the first disciples he called. It wasn't, come, believe in me. It was, come, follow me. Come, follow me. The idea was that these fishermen could actually become like Jesus and do what he did. To be a disciple of Jesus is to become like Jesus. And we started last week there because that sort of sets up this whole teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, is that these disciples are brought to him, called to him, invited to come follow him. People who you wouldn't think would be invited. But then after calling these first disciples 
and seeing many more begin following him because of his teachings and his healings, the way that he both announced that the kingdom of God was at hand and demonstrated it by healing people and freeing them. Well, because of all this, a lot more people start following him, it says in Matthew 4. And now he's ready to articulate what it means to follow him. His path, his pattern, his rhythm of life in the Sermon on the Mount. And we actually included the first two verses of the Sermon on the Mount last week. And that's where it begins. Matthew 5, verses 1 and 2. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, He went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to Him and He began to teach them. So before we get into the Beatitudes, which are kind of the introduction to this whole three-chapter sermon, there's these two verses of introduction before that. So lots of introductions in all of this, as last week was an entire introduction to this little introduction to the introduction of the whole thing. Two things, though, are important in these two verses that give us some context for this sermon he's about to give. First is that Jesus goes up on a mountain. Jesus goes up on a mountain. And mountains are very important in the history of Israel. They're almost always at pivotal moments in Israel's history. And we should think back right now, especially to Moses. Now in Exodus 19 and 20, the Lord summons Moses to go up Mount Sinai. And God meets him there. And when God meets him, he tells him to speak to the people. But he tells him first to go all the way back down the mountain. He says, no one should come up this mountain with you, except Aaron. In fact, if anyone comes up this mountain with you, they'll die. So Moses goes back down the mountain after meeting with God, and he teaches the people. He shares with them these Ten Commandments, which you've probably heard of. This law, these commandments, they were a way of of being a community together. A way that Israel could be a community that would distinguish them. That would distinguish them as a peculiar people. It's how they were to be holy in religious language. How they were to be holy. How they were to be set apart. So, back to our story. Jesus, he goes up a mountainside to teach. He's stepping into mosaic territory. When he comes down, he declares a new way to be human, a new and better law. He says, this is actually how you are to be holy, to be set apart. And so Jesus, in this Sermon on the Mount, is the new Moses. He's the new Moses. And his teaching is of kind of a different caliber than Moses's. The Ten Commandments are sort of all about uh, creating order. Creating order, containment, meaning. Um, They're super helpful. 
They create social order. They teach us about obedience. Are, are you familiar with the Ten Commandments? Let me, let me read a little bit of them. Essentially, they say things like this. Have no other gods than me. Don't make a graven image of God. Don't take his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath. They say, honor your parents. Don't kill. Don't steal. Don't have adultery. Don't cheat. Don't lie. They're pretty black and white. For the most part, we can tell if someone is doing or not doing them. Did you kill that person? It's mostly a yes or no question. And, and that's good. They help order society, giving some clarity, right and wrong, black and white, right? Uh, Richard Rohr points out that they give our lives, the Ten Commandments, give our lives a sense of containment and order, something that is especially necessary in the first half of our lives, um, the first half of our spirituality. Why? Because when... when you're younger, we're oftentimes more eager to just kind of act on impulses. And so these rules help contain those impulses, help contain those urges and desires. But at a certain point in our spiritual lives, we need more. We need more than just black or white, right or wrong. In fact, there's this story in Mark 10 about this rich young ruler. And he comes to Jesus and he asks, you know, what he has to do to, to be right. And, and Jesus says, you know, the, the great commandments. And the, the, the rich young ruler basically says, well, he's, he's kept the Ten Commandments since his youth. But then Jesus invites him into something further. And he says, okay, you want more? Then sell everything you have and give it to the poor and come follow me. It's that come follow me type language. And the the rich young man essentially says no. At least that's where we're left off. I don't think he's ready for that next thing. uh, For that next thing. He can't go that far. The Beatitudes, according to Rohr, quote, Reveal a world of pure grace and abundance, unquote. And he calls this the second half of life, spirituality. It's when our spirituality moves beyond simply needing order to being able to incorporate what seems like disorder. To being able to bring in the stuff that doesn't seem to make sense. And when you first read the Beatitudes, a lot of it doesn't make sense. What do you mean those people are blessed? They certainly don't seem blessed. Jesus' teaching as the new Moses takes us deeper into the spiritual life, which is why he gives it to those who were seeking him with their whole lives, to his disciples. So again, in that first couple verses, it's important to note this. It says his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. So these first words, these Beatitudes, they aren't given to everyone. Because Jesus knows that this is intense teaching. So he gives it to those who actually want to become like him. 
Again, remember last week we talked about how following Jesus is actually about apprenticing to him. It's this whole life discipleship of learning to become like him and follow him and do what he does. It's about living a certain way in the world, the way of Jesus. And so the teachings that follow, both in the Beatitudes today and then the remainder of the teachings in the Sermon on the Mount, they all give form and content to what it means to follow Jesus. Back to Moses in Exodus 19. 1925, Exodus 19.25, which I think there's a slide for. This is the last verse in chapter 19. It's the verse right before the Ten Commandments are given. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Again, when Moses teaches the Israelites, he has to come down off the mountain. People are not to come near that mountain. But when Jesus teaches the disciples, they come up to him on the mountain. And I wonder, why aren't they afraid to ascend to him? Why aren't they scared that they might, poof, disappear into a cloud of uh, smoke or something like that when they approach this teacher, this holy teacher, on this holy mountain? And I think it has to do a lot with what we taught on last week, that Jesus' invitation to these first disciples is to come and be like him which means they can safely go and be with him in the presence of God on this mountain. And so the disciples are invited up. This is a long-winded introduction, I know, but I hope it gives some context to these words. So after all that, Jesus begins. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Now you've got to understand This is Jesus' opening line to the whole Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The word used for blessed, by the way, some translators choose happy, which I like because it's a lot more jarring. So then you'd have, happy are the spiritually impoverished. And that's how Jesus kicks off the whole thing. The whole thing. Your, Your opening line is supposed to include Everyone, not sort of make people think, what? What? Who is this new Moses? And what in the world is he talking about? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Happy are the spiritually impoverished. But what he's doing is actually including everyone. He's saying, you know those who feel like they're not quite good enough spiritually, They're in lack. The kingdom of heaven is theirs. See how that, that's probably all of us, but he includes everyone. Now, I actually want to camp on this first line a little bit because, again, this is the opening to the whole Sermon on the Mount. All that Jesus is about to teach about life in the kingdom of God has to enter through the door of this one paradoxical line. All the rest of it has to be thread through the eye of this needle. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Well, Luke, when he says this, he just says, blessed are the poor. 
And he just stops there. He doesn't sort of widen it to be poor in spirit as well. But Matthew includes poor in spirit. And so, so what does it mean to be poor? What does it mean to be poor here? I think the simplest definition might be the most helpful, which is quite simply when you feel like you don't have enough. When you feel like you don't have enough or when you really don't have enough. You might say that's poverty. It's when you're, you're desperate. Jesus is saying that even here, perhaps especially here, in poverty and desperation, God's presence is near. Again, those disciples are ascending the mountain where their ancestors would have been burnt to a crisp, and Jesus has perhaps the most comforting words he could give. You who are in lack, God's kingdom is here. God's presence is here. It's safe. It's like a reaffirmation that it's a good thing you climbed up this mountain. Uh, You're not going to be burnt. You're not going to be destroyed. In poverty and desperation, God's presence is near. But Philip Yancey puts it this way. Human beings do not readily admit desperation. When they do, the kingdom of heaven draws near. We don't want, I don't want to admit desperation. Most of us don't want to admit desperation. Most of us don't want to appear poor, whether that's materially poor or spiritually poor. You don't want to come to church, I'm guessing, and appear like you have sort of less than everybody else spiritually. Like you're perhaps the lowest on the pole when it comes to you and God. No one wants to feel that way when you're here. And so often, when we feel like we don't have enough, things unlike heaven start bubbling to the surface. Things like what? Like anxiety? Things like worry? Things like hurry? I don't have enough. I better go get more. Or a sort of white-knuckled, closed-handedness becomes our posture. I don't have enough. I better not lose what I have. I mean, isn't that, aren't those sort of some of the first instincts when we feel poor, when we feel desperate? I'm going to hang on tightly to what I have, or I'm going to feel so anxious and worried and in a rush to get whatever I can. That sort of instinct, though, if you live in it long enough, becomes toxic and destructive. It doesn't become a doorway to heaven. But Jesus says poverty of spirit is actually a place of blessedness. I think this is because it has the possibility to be a place of profound openness and receptivity. Now, our first instinct is clenching, holding, closing, But when there's not enough, there is the possibility, if we should choose to open, to let something fill the emptiness. If we let our poorness of spirit be an inner attitude of receptivity and openness, then the blessedness of poverty starts to make more sense. Why would someone be blessed who has poverty of spirit? Well, one is blessed because only in this state is it possible to receive anything. 
Right? Only if you don't have can you get. And that's a blessedness. Uh, Cynthia Bourgeau, she, she tells a story. Uh, it's a Zen teaching, actually, but it, it, it illuminates this principle quite well. She tells this story. She says, A young seeker, keen to become the student of a certain master, is invited to an interview at the master's house. The student rambles on about all his spiritual experience, his past teachers, his insights and skills, and his favorite philosophies. He's sharing all of this, all of this. The master listens silently and begins pouring a cup of tea. He pours and pours, and the cup starts to overflow, and he keeps pouring and pouring and pouring, and eventually the student notices. And he interrupts his monologue about his own wisdom to say, Stop pouring! The cup is full! And the teacher says, Yes, and so are you. How can I possibly teach you? Do you see why Jesus might begin his whole thing, his whole sermon, with this idea of poverty of spirit? Are you so full? Do you come to Jesus with everything already figured out? that he's like, sure, you like this cup that has nothing left to receive in it. It's so full. This is why Jesus opens the door to his teaching in this way. And the following Beatitudes as well, they set the stage for everything else that Jesus is going to teach in this Sermon on the Mount. And in them, in these Beatitudes, Jesus forces us to ask ourselves, where is blessedness really? Where is happiness Really? Where's the good life? Where's fulfillment? We all want this, right? We all want blessedness. We all want happiness. We all want to live the good life. To feel like at the end of our days, I've lived a good, full life. What does that look like? What is that? Is blessedness, you know, when I get my way, then I'm really feeling blessed when I get what I want. Is that blessedness? Is the good life when I have enough savings finally saved up that I don't have to worry about any bill that could ever come? Is happiness when I possess nice things? Nice shoes? Nice car? Is the good life When I get a nicer apartment? Is blessedness when I finally find a partner and get married? Is it when our church grows bigger and has more impact in the neighborhood? When I start to hear other pastors talk about how great our church is? Is that when I'm living the good life? Is it when my kids get into the preschool? that will set them up to get into that elementary school. 
that will set them up to get into that high school, that will set them up to get into that Ivy League university, that will set them up to become the lawyer or the doctor, that will get them the salary that will pay for my retirement someplace (laughs) warm and comfortable. Is that the good life? So what I want to do with the rest of the sermon is actually give us some time to dwell on who Jesus says has the blessed life. So what I'm going to do for uh, all the Beatitudes is I'm going to read very slowly uh, five different translations of each Beatitude. And what I want you to do is just try and sit and pay as much attention as you can and see where one might sort of feel like, oh, that's rubbing the wrong way. What's that about? And just take note of it. Maybe write a note down and then bring it to Jesus as you have some time this week or even this morning. But just take note of where these things either bring comfort to your soul or discomfort in a way that actually may be holy discomfort and see what God has for you here, okay? Asking yourself, where is blessedness? Where is happiness? I'll be reading uh, from the New International Version, which is what Becca read for our scripture. I'll be reading from the Common English Bible, another translation. I'll be reading a version by um, a theologian named Brian Zond, a theologian named Chris Green, and then a paraphrase called The Message. Okay, I'm just telling you all that now so you know where these things are coming from. If any of them stick out to you and you forget where that one was from, you want to know more, whatever, just ask me. I'll be happy to share it with you. I just didn't want to muddy up the screen with all that information. All right, here we go. In fact, I'm going to scoot over a little bit so that I'm not in your way in case you want to see the words more. I might be in your way, Norman. Sorry. (laughs) Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Happy are people who are hopeless because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Good on those who lack the power to fulfill their dreams. Blessed are those who are poor at being spiritual, for the kingdom of heaven is well-suited for ordinary people. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there is more of God and His rule. Verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Happy are people who grieve, 
because they will be made glad. Good on those who've received the gift of tears. Blessed are the depressed who mourn and grieve, for they create space to encounter comfort from another. You're blessed when you feel you've lost what is most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one most dear to you. Verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit earth. Happy are people who are humble, because they will inherit the earth. Good on those who are happy not to get their way. Blessed are the gentle and trusting, who are not grasping and clutching, For God will personally guarantee their share when heaven comes to earth. You're blessed when you're content with just who you are. No more, no less. That's the moment you find yourselves proud owners of everything that can't be bought. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Happy are people who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, because they will be fed until they are full. Good on those who ache night and day for things to be as they ought. Blessed are those who ache for the world to be made right. For them, the government of God is a dream come true. You're blessed when you've worked up a good appetite for God. He's food and drink in the best meal you'll ever eat. Verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Happy are people who show mercy, because they will receive mercy. Good on those who are revolted by cruelty. Blessed are those who give mercy, for they will get it back when they need it most. You're blessed when you care. At the moment of being careful, you find yourselves cared for. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Happy are those who have pure hearts, because they will see God. Good on those who see through God's disguises. Blessed are those who have a clean window in their soul, for they will perceive God when and where others don't. 
And you're blessed when you get your inside world, your mind and heart put right. Then you can see God in the outside world. Verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Happy are people who make peace, because they will be called God's children. Good on those who leave joy in their wake. Blessed are the bridge builders in a war-torn world, for they are God's children working in the family business. You're blessed when you can show people how to cooperate instead of compete or fight. That's when you discover who you really are and your place in God's family. Verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Happy are people whose lives are harassed because they are righteous, because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Good on those whom God leaves hanging. Blessed are those who are mocked and misunderstood for the right reasons, for the kingdom of heaven comes to earth amidst such persecution. You're blessed when your commitment to God provokes persecution. The persecution drives you even deeper into God's kingdom. And verses 11 and 12. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. Because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Happy are you when people insult you and harass you and speak all kinds of bad and false things about you, all because of me. Be full of joy and be glad, because you have a great reward in heaven. In the same way people harass the prophets who came before you. All this good will not exactly endear you to everyone, believe me. But rest assured, your sorrows will prove your worth and your silence will get the last word. Not only that, count yourselves blessed every time people put you down or throw you out or speak lies about you to discredit me. What it means is that the truth is too close for comfort, and they are uncomfortable. You can be glad when that happens. Give a cheer, even. For though they don't like it, I do. And all heaven applauds. And know that you are in good company. My prophets and witnesses have always gotten into this kind of trouble. So I wonder, did anything stick out to you? Did anything sort of ring and echo when you first heard it? Did anything stick as if it was the right kind of Velcro? Take note of it. Bring it to God today, this week. 
Bring it to someone else, even. Say, you know which one really got me? You know which one got under my skin? You know which one irked me? And share it. The Beatitudes ultimately are a description of Jesus himself. No one person other than Jesus is going to embody all these things. Right? At least in the history I've read and the people I know, I haven't met anyone outside Jesus who's all these things. They outline the character of God, which is put on display in Jesus. Humility, sorrow, meekness, hunger for righteousness, mercy, purity of heart, peacemaking, being persecuted, insulted, and falsely spoken against. They speak to Jesus. In the letter to the Philippians, Paul describes Christ like this. This is Philippians 2, verses 6 and 8, 6 through 8. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Here, meekness, humility. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. The Beatitudes, as interesting as they are as literature, they are meaningless if they are detached from the Messiah. As confusing as they are even for Christians, they are completely incomprehensible apart from Christ. They are pure stupidity when stripped of the power of the Spirit. And yet, because He calls us to come, follow Me, the Beatitudes become a window into the reality of eternal life for those who least expect it. Even me. Even you. Join me in prayer. Father God, we are grateful that you are pure grace, that you are patient, that you are loving and long-suffering, and that you invite each and every one of us into deeper union and relationship with you. We pray this morning, God, that in the places where we're confused or even downright disgusted, that even those reactions and emotions would draw us into deeper relationship. That rather than repel us and turn us away from you, it would cause us to wonder, what kind of God is this who says these kinds of things? Might I know him a bit more? God, we thank you that you invite us all to the table, all those who would choose faith in you, who would respond to your invitation. So, Lord, would you give us faith to do just that, to respond, to follow. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So you...